You are important to us, and your participation is important to us. And so today I want to remind you that we would love for you to check in with us online. If you would, please fill out the online friendship pad through our FPC app or through the website. But we also want you to remember that you can still participate in this service of worship because we believe that that giving is an important act of worship. Not only is giving an important act of worship, it is also a way that you participate in the ongoing ministries of First Presbyterian Church. We do what we do because you give what you have shared just as God has, has given and shared with you. So please remember to check, on, check out both our online friendship pad and our online giving options so that you can not only be counted as present so that we can be in touch with you, but so that you may participate in God's work in the world. Well, today we are going to be starting a new study of the book of Philippians. Paul went to Philippi, the Roman province of Macedonia in northern Greece, as a result of a vision in which he saw and heard the figure of a Macedonian man pleading for him to come and share the gospel in Europe. In Philippi, Paul shared the good news of Jesus Christ with those very people who would become the seeds of a faithful congregation. When the apostle wrote the letter, in or around 62 AD, Paul was under arrest. He was under guard in the city of Rome, and he was awaiting his own execution. And yet, in spite of Paul's circumstances, Philippians is a letter of joy. It's a letter of encouragement and teaching and gratitude. And so today we begin our study of the book of Philippians with the introduction to the book of Philippians, verses 1 and 2. Hear now as I read the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, over the last three months, I have had a chance to catch up on a lot of movies. And one of my favorite new movies is an independent film that came out called Peanut Butter Falcon. How many of you have ever seen that movie, Peanut Butter Falcon? The Peanut Butter Falcon is an adventure story about Zach, who's age 22. He's a young man with Down syndrome who runs away from the nursing home where he lives to chase his dream of, catch this, of becoming a professional wrestler. Now already, we're talking about something that is very unexpected. But at the beginning of his journey, Zach meets an out-of-work fisherman named Tyler, who's on the run, both from the law and some vengeful competitors. Well, together, 
Zach and Tyler make a Tom Sawyer-like odyssey from Virginia to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in search of this professional wrestling school by Zach's hero, an old wrestler who goes by the name of the Saltwater Redneck. And together, they plod their way down the country roads and through the marshlands, camping, eluding capture, catching fish, and even getting baptized along the way. But finally, they make it to the training school, and after a crash course in fake holds and fake punches and fake throws, Zach is ready to enter the ring for his first match under his new pro wrestler identity, the Peanut Butter Falcon. It was not at all what I expected. But what I love about this movie, what I love about this story is that it is a clever, heart-wrenching and hope-filled story about an extremely lovable underdog. Everyone loves a story about an underdog. And I think that's why Paul's letter to the Philippians is so beloved. Philippians is a hope-filled and heartwarming letter about what I'm going to call underdog faith. Now, first of all, what is an underdog? Well, underdog is an expression that we've all heard and probably have all used at some point. But an underdog is a person who is expected to lose in a game, who's expected to lose a fight or some kind of contest or some kind of struggle. An underdog is a person who is handicapped or disadvantaged because of some injustice or discrimination, and it's someone that no one expects to win. But then an underdog takes those low expectations and just turns them upside down. He turns unexpected joy in the face of suffering. He brings unexpected courage into the face of persecution. He brings unexpected kindness into the face of great cruelty. Brings unexpected patience into the face of great urgency. Brings unexpected tenacity into the face of overwhelming odds. And unexpected generosity in the face of poverty. So what is an underdog faith? Well, here's how I would describe it. An underdog faith is a faith that no one expects from people that you would never expect in, in circumstances that you would never expect. Underdog faith is hard to define, but we know it when we see it. And over the years, we've all seen it, that faith that comes from unexpected people in unexpected circumstances. You know, I've had the awesome privilege of meeting so many people with an underdog faith. I've met so many people at Loaves and Fishes and at the KRL, people in extreme poverty in places like Africa and Honduras and Mexico and down on the border. I've met them at Loaves and Fishes. I've met people who have, who have little in this world and yet they have so much faith. You know, just ask Karen McCulloch, our, our coordinator of the Kingdom Re Restoration Lab, the KRL, about Margie. When her father passed away, when Karen's father passed away just a couple of weeks ago, Karen was working in the KRL. 
And Margie and several other homeless neighbors gathered around her and prayed for her. I mean, here were these precious people who came to the KRL that day to look for help, to look for everything from food to counseling, and they ended up showing the love of Christ so beautifully with Karen. You know, in this congregation, there are brothers and sisters with autism and Down syndrome who have a love broader than their limitations and have a faith that would move mountains. I think about my colleague Hector Reynoso, a pastor from Mercedes, Texas, whose church, whose building, whose money, whose equipment, Bibles and hymn books, even handmade furniture, all of it was taken from him and his congregation by his former denomination when they took a stand for biblical authority over cultural corruption. They had to leave the denomination and everything else they had, and yet they continue to minister to people all along the border. I think about our Mission South partner, Antonio Alvarez, who grew up a street orphan, but is now working on his PhD at the London School of Theology so that he can bring sober, strong theology to the mission field in Mexico. Underdog believers are those people whose faith has been shaken and yet their faith seems unshakable. They have every reason to be bitter or to give up and yet they have a faith that no one expects. I mean, how can people who have so little in the world have so much faith? How do they have a faith like that and how can I get a faith like that? A faith that no one expects. Well, the book of Philippians is a letter to people like that, to people with underdog faith. In Philippi, Paul's faith should have been shaken to the core. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas were attacked. They were stripped. They were beaten by a mob. They were thrown into prison, and their feet were put in shackles and stocks. They should have been shaking in fear, but instead of crumbling, they spent the night singing songs and telling the other prisoners about Jesus until God shook the earth and shook the doors from their hinges and shook the shackles from their ankles. And the jailer was so overwhelmed that he and his whole family were baptized and became followers of Jesus. These Philippians, Paul was so proud of these brothers and sisters. The apostle wrote to the Corinthians, or excuse me, wrote to the Philippians to express his appreciation and affection for them because in spite of their, their persecution, they supported him financially. For years, they supported him in his gospel ministry all over the empire. Here's how he described them to the church in Corinth, to the Corinthians. He said, look at your neighbors to the north, the Christians in Macedonia. Even though they are poor themselves, their joy in Christ is so great that it has overflowed in generosity and service to others. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul says that even in extreme poverty, even in extreme persecution, they literally begged for him, begged him for an opportunity to give because giving gave them so much joy. 
That is an underdog faith. Now, because Philippians is so upbeat, it would be easy to underestimate the threat under which the Philippian Christians live every day. Even though Philippians is filled with soaring expressions of joy and inspiration, Philippians is also a letter about suffering. The joy and the hope it declares is set against a background of persecution, of poverty, and danger. Set within the ancient boundaries of the kingdom of Macedon, Philippi was named for Philip of Macedon, the famous father of his even more famous son, Alexander the Great. But just as the armies of Macedon once marched forth to subdue the world for the glory of Greece, the old empire of Alexander was brought low by the new empire of Caesar Augustus. Now, Philippi was not just another conquered city. It was considered a Roman colony. It was kind of a military city like San Antonio. It had been given as a retirement gift to the veteran soldiers of the Roman Civil War as a prize for their loyalty to the emperor. As a colony, Philippi was, in fact, a little Rome, modeled after the mother city. It was full of Roman architecture. That was the standard. Roman-style arches, bathhouses, forums, and temples all dominated Philippi at the time of Paul. I mean, Greek was the language of the larger province of Macedonia. But Latin was designated the official language of Philippi. And even though these people lived in Greece, they held on to their Roman identity with a patriotic further that came from being in the legion. Now, a variety of pagan gods had their temples in Philippi, but the religious life of the city was centered on the worship of the emperor. The Philippians took great pride in the impressive altars and temples dedicated to the emperor and even members of his family. There was no separation of government and religion. In Philippi, the state was the church and the emperor was God. And so it should be no surprise that people resisted the gospel when they heard Paul proclaiming Jesus Christ. It should be no surprise that they resisted him even with such brutality. Instead of acknowledging Jesus as Lord, or excuse me, instead of acknowledging Caesar as Lord, Paul called Jesus Lord and Savior, before whom every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Instead of acknowledging the peace of the Roman Empire, Christianity preached the peace of the kingdom of God. Instead of being first and foremost citizens of Rome, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus Christ, not Caesar, has the power, according to Paul, to subject all things to himself. For the Philippians to hear these words was nothing short of rebellion. And so Philippians is a joyful letter, but its undercurrent is a sober realization that time is running out. Paul what himself was facing a possible death sentence and the church was tensed up ready for the assault of a menacing 
world. In fact, in verse 130 of, of Philippians, Paul writes this, you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. This common experience of suffering for the sake of Christ forms the background of this letter. And so as we read this letter together in the weeks to come, as we read these beautiful words of encouragement and joy and hope, we have to remember that these are not just the cheap platitudes of an untroubled life. These are the words of one underdog to another. Now, why do we need to understand Philippians? Well, we need to understand Philippians because we too are living with unexpected circumstances in unexpected times. The other day, I saw an internet meme that said, from now on, saying that something is 2020, as in the year 2020, is going to be an expression that means that something is crazy. So instead of saying that something's crazy, people are going to say, man, that was 2020. And you know what? I agree with that. Because 2020 has been 2020. We are living in unexpected, crazy times. And we need to be paying attention to Philippians right now because right now, whether we're talking about leading with compassionate ministry in the midst of a pandemic or standing up for racial justice for our marginalized neighbors or standing with courage against a violent, growing cancel culture, in these unexpected circumstances... Our city, our nation, and even our church are going to need unexpected faith, hope, and love from unexpected people. Now, the defining quality of underdog faith is humility. Underdog faith is a faith that finds its strength from being under. It finds its strength from being under. It means putting ourselves under Christ, under others, and under God's grace. So as we study Philippians, we're going to study each of these topics in more depth. But let me introduce them briefly today. First of all, we need people who put themselves under Christ. You know, what does it really mean to give our lives to submit to Jesus Christ? In Philippi, the emperor was God. The people's status had been conferred on them by Caesar Augustus himself. He had given them their city, their prosperity, their culture. He had given them their identity. Everything they had came from him. Devotion to the emperor was spiritual, and the gospel challenged all of that. Look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That includes Caesar's. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, Paul is telling the people that Jesus Christ is not simply one name among many names, one God among many gods, one path among many, many paths, one method among many methods. To be a Christian is to have all of your eggs in one basket. He'll later say in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life to prove it. No matter what chains or baggage or fears or guilt or unfulfilled expectations you carry. And he bet his own life on God to prove that God is greater, infinitely greater, higher, better, and stronger than everything that traps us or threatens us or beguiles us or tempts us or scares us or confuses us. So here's the question that Paul put before the Philippians, and here's the question he puts before us. Who do you trust? Who comes first? Who gives you your identity? Whom are you going to follow? Whom are you going to obey? Whom are you going to worship? Christ or Caesar or something else? We need people who are going to live under Christ. Second, we need people who put themselves under others. What does it really mean to serve others? Well, Paul wrote this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Putting the needs of other people above our own is hard. It's unnatural. It's uncomfortable. But Jesus challenged us not just to love our neighbors, but to love them as we love ourselves, to take care of them the way we would take care of ourselves. If they need it, if we need it, then they need it as well, to take care of their families and their needs as we would our own, to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God, to wear the mask, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of others. Jesus said, you shall love one another as I have loved you, willing to give up everything for the people that God puts in our lives. And Philippians reminds us that we do all of this because Jesus did it first. Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, he put himself under by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We love in the example of Christ Jesus because he did it for us. Finally, we need people who put themselves 
under grace. What does it really mean to trust God? This letter begins and ends with God's grace. Paul begins this letter by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends with these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. These aren't just words. This is not just boilerplate. This is a prayer. God's grace is the first and last thought of this letter. I think everybody will understand what I mean when I say that we need peace right now. But the peace we need is not a peace that comes from denial or ignores reality or that comes from false promises of either our culture or its critics. But rather, it is peace that is grounded in the grace of God, our Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is grace? Grace is one of those churchy words that we use all the time, but maybe we don't understand it all the way. A lot of people equate the word grace with the idea of unconditional love. And yet so often what they really mean is that grace means that no matter what we do, well, no matter what we are, God will love us. That anything is, is acceptable to God. That God loves me just the way I am. But you know what? Grace is so much deeper than that because that's really a very shallow understanding of God's grace. Of course, God loves you. And of course, God loves you where he finds you. He loves us right where he finds us. But he also loves us too much to leave us there. What is God's grace? God's grace is not just unconditional love. It's not just God's unfailing love. It is also his undeserved mercy and his unstoppable power. God's grace is not just that he loves us. It is that he has forgiven us by the, son of his blood, uh, by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we are in the palm of his hand and he will not let us go. It means that God not only loves us, but he is in control. He cares about us. And that all means that he loves us and can take care of us no matter how 2020 things get. So putting yourself under God's grace means putting yourself under Christ, under others, and then trusting God with the rest of it. Paul wrote this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every and any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says, God has us. He holds us in his hand no matter how 2020 things get. But peace does not come from possessions or popularity or power. It comes from our position under the providence of God. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't be consumed by all of the fears and wants of, and, of our circumstances and culture. 
Don't be concerned about what you will eat, what you will wear, what you have, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. In a very similar vein, Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The power of God's grace is not just the power to uphold you. It is the power to transform, to take what could be resentment and turn it into love, to take what should cause fear and turn it into courage, to take what should cause cynicism and turn it into faith. And throughout this letter, Paul is saying, be strong, trust the Lord, put yourself under his grace, and you will see how God takes our circumstances and turns them with his promises for his purposes. You know, the late President Ronald Reagan was always said to have, had, to have been a great optimist. And many of his former aides have said that his optimism was illustrated very well by one of his favorite jokes. And the joke went like this. A famous psychologist was, con was conducting a study of despair and hope, pessimism and optimism in children. And one day a colleague came to observe his work and the famous psychologist took him to two rooms. In the first room, they saw a room filled with a variety of brand new toys with a child sitting there in the middle of all the toys. But his little lip was stuck out. He was upset. He was weeping. And the visiting scientist said to him, said, boy, what's the matter? Why are you crying? You have all these wonderful toys all around you to play with. And the little boy said, oh, yes, they're wonderful and they're new. But, but if I play with them, they're going to get broken and they're going to be old. And one day they may all go away. And, and then I'll be sad and I'll have nothing to play with. And the little boy was just filled. He was broken with despair. And then they went to the second room. And when they opened the door to the second room, the visiting professor was immediately struck by the smell of a barnyard. And he looked in the room, and he saw this mound of manure in the middle of the room. And up on top of the mound of manure was this little boy who was just laughing and giggling. And he was digging into the manure and just tossing it left and right and tossing it left and right and just looking like he was having the best time in the world. And the visiting professor said, said son, what are you doing? Why are you playing on that pile of manure? He says, what's, what's wrong with you? And the little boy said, oh, sir, I'm so happy because I know if there's a pile of manure this big, there's got to be a pony under here somewhere that's underdog faith the kind of faith that sees everything that 2020 has to throw at us and yet knows that God has gifts for us buried underneath 2020 is crazy and we need some peace but I know there's got to be a pony under here somewhere and right now, our city, our nation, and even our church are going to need unexpected faith and hope and love from unexpected people. You know, we're so used to being on top. We need to learn how to hope from the bottom up. 
We need peace. Not a peace that comes from denial or ignores reality, but a peace grounded in the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are the things that you see right now affecting the things you can't see? How are the current circumstances affecting your peace, your mental health, your perceptions, and your spirit? Where does your peace come from? From Caesar or Christ? If we really want peace, then we really need God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so, as Paul said, so now I say to you, to all of the saints who are here in San Antonio, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for, for your love for us, a love that will not let us go, a love that holds us even when we feel like we are surrounded by trouble. Lord, we ask that you would not allow 2020 to become a year of curse, but a year of blessing as we learn new ways to love you, to love one another, and love our city. Lord, give us an underdog's faith, a faith like Zach in Peanut Butter Falcon, who though he was not expected to win, triumphed because of his undying trust. Give us that kind of faith and lead us forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.